Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, and if you want to support our horrible business model, just go to patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, so how's your week going so far? I got a dish glove on my hand. I got a coffee filter draped over this microphone, and my wife is going to be so mad if I get this damn Corona. So, uh, are there latex gloves up here, or do you bring them with you? I only found one. So, if you want a, if you want, you can use it. If you want a left-handed latex glove uh, and like four disinfectant wipes, you're all good, man. There's a lot of uh, cleaning supplies down in the closed bar downstairs, and we need to get access to it really soon after the show on Monday. I was feeling fine. I had no issues. Uh, Pete Valavanis, the uh, owner of Carrie's Lounge, he believed that he was having symptoms for of coronavirus. My girlfriend has been saying the same thing since last Wednesday. Uh, I was feeling perfectly fine. Everything was okay. At about 4 o'clock, I decided to finish up my work and went home. On the one-block walk home, I suddenly broke into the most intense fever that by the time I got one block away, only one block, one block walk, by the time I got home, I was completely and thoroughly soaked with sweat. I get in my house, I immediately go into hours of feeling freezing cold, and then it just broke. It just went away. I feel a ton better right now, so I have no idea if I have it, if I had it. I don't want to go to the doctor to find out if I did. I don't know if my girly does. I don't know if Pete does. I have no idea, but it's it's all around me. So You're going to eat that corned beef in the fridge that he left us? I already did. I had some <laughs> yesterday. It was delicious. It's fantastic. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, pass on food. doesn't pass on cats, which is fantastic. And if you heat it up to, you got to heat up the food anyway. You heat it up to only 140 degrees and it's going to be fine, you know. So, yeah, it was great. It's really, really good uh, Corona beef. I mean, corned beef. Today, we live in the age of oil, and we are transitioning to the next energy source, ostensibly wind and solar, with natural gas which is secured through fracking. We're told, sure, fracking is bad, but it is only a transition fuel as we move to cleaner energy sources. But it's not like we're not burning coal in the age of oil. We're still burning coal like it's going out of style. And it is, but that's not stopping us from depending on coal as a very important part of our energy grid. Nor have we moved on from the power of water, which fueled mills before coal. Nor have we abandoned animal and human labor when we transition to any of these new fuels. That's because the concept of transition that we accept as inevitable never actually happens. It's one of the many misunderstandings we have 
on energy like it's not oil that built the Middle East, but coal. Coal brought by the British Empire that got the whole ball rolling on climate change. Yep, the freaking British Empire started the process that eventually led to climate change. Oh, how I hate the British Empire. We'll dig deep and hopefully find the truth about energy and how the desire for it has been so destructive when we speak to An Barak, author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. An is a social and cultural historian of science and technology in non-Western settings and a senior lecturer in the Department of Middle Eastern and African History at Tel Aviv University. An is co-founder and co-editor of the Social History Workshop, a weekly blog published on the Heretz website analyzing current Middle Eastern affairs through the lens of contemporary historical research. You can find that blog at levantine-journal.org slash blog. I have to write down Powering Empire because for whatever reason, I have the subtitle of his book in my script, but not the actual title of his book. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is... What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? <laughs> what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? I can tell you my answer right now. It's the same thing I always run out of. Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, white chocolate chips. <laughs> I'm also out of beer, though, too. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell it wins the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, loaded with 25 interviews we did over the past 20 years. It's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now if you want to, or you can get our trucker cap, T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, and more at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, this week's question from hell is, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? This is not the media. This is hell. And I do... All right, let me just do this. The only thing I'm certain about in these uncertain times is the uncertainty. That is not knowing what's actually happening, not having a clue as to what is really going on. Sure, the news is 24-7 coronavirus, but what do we really know? For instance, what caused this out, uh, this outbreak in the first place? And why do I have to go online to find it find it out? If the news is only COVID-19 all the time, then why are the only reports about who has contracted the virus, where they contracted it, and how many contracted it, as if it's reactive journalism, reacting to the latest numbers and then reviewing them over and over and over again. Maps show reported cases, but what about unreported cases? What about people who self-diagnose, self-quarantine, and for whatever reason, probably they don't want to spend the money, they never see the doctor, so it goes unreported. How did it spread so quickly? What role did globalization play? Are universal healthcare systems reacting better to the pandemic than our privatized system? In instead, all I hear is wash your hands, cover your mouth, and Trump underestimated how bad it would be until yesterday when he lied about underestimating how bad it would be dozens of times over the past two months. 
I'm certain of the uncertainty because I know my rotten history and I know we are lied to in times of real threats to the public with the government rationalizing their lies by saying they did not want to cause panic, fear, or lower public morale. That's what the U.S. did with the 1918 global influenza pandemic when the first person, a U.S. soldier returning from fighting in Europe during World War I, became the first person to die from the virus. The U.S. feared it would hurt wartime morale as the U.S. was still engaged in the Great War. They didn't tell the public, and the pandemic spread because of the U.S. and allies not being honest with its own citizenry. More recently, in China, they did the same with SARS in 2003, not telling the public what was happening until outbreaks started happening in other parts of the world and as far away as Canada. Again, I know all of that because of the Rotten History segment on our show. Both of those items of governments lying to the public were in last week's Rotten History. And now we are living in Rotten History. And with no uncertainty whatsoever, I am certain we are being lied to again. We know the U.S. and China have rotten histories of lying during viral outbreaks. We know China tried to downplay coronavirus. We know Trump did. For whatever reasons, we are being lied to in order to not instill panic. I guess. I'm not sure. At other times, governments lie to, to do the opposite, to actually instill panic and fear in order to get their desired response, which is usually one of those revenge fuel violence-like responses. When the Twin Towers went down on 9-11, Dan Rather was reporting that as many as 20 to 30,000 people may have died. The number dropped the next day and the next and the next. For weeks, the number of people who died on 9-11 kept dropping, and week after week, month after month, we happily reported here on, those, on this show those declining numbers but kept wondering why were the numbers so high in the first place and so incredibly wrong. In the end, the original number proved to be 10 times higher than the tragic, 10 times lower than the tragic number of deaths on 9-11. Why the weeks of exaggerated numbers? Then with Katrina, we had the opposite. The numbers were very low, shockingly low, and every day they would mount. Were we downplaying the severity of the disaster? Was that having an impact on the rescue and response? Only a few people died. What's the big deal? But why were the numbers with Katrina so low and kept getting higher, while on 9-11 they were incredibly high and kept shrinking? What are the messages the government and the media are trying to send? Why make 9-11 out to be a far worse tragedy than it already was? Why make Katrina out to be no big deal when the number dead was almost equal to half the number who died? on 9-11. I can speculate that they were trying to make the threat to the U.S. far greater than it was to rush into war after 9-11. With Katrina, I'd guess they did not want to reveal the incompetence of the Army Corps of Engineers who built the levees or the structural racism that led to the government simply not caring for the people of, of the poorer, more vulnerable and underwater parts of the city. I am certain of is we were lied to and we're likely being lied to again. They say they do it to not hurt our morale. But in the long run, you know what really hurts public morale permanently? A government that lies to the people who they're supposed to represent. We are being lied to, count on it. Lots more of us have coronavirus because we can't get tested. Others have it and will self-quarantine and never become a reported case. Let's be honest with ourselves. We all have it. But it is in this time when something wonderful might happen. As we tear ourselves away from each other and self-quarantine now with so much time on our hands and so little work to do, let's pull together while separated. Let's get together communally, virtually, and start imagining what the world will be like when we'll finally be able to re-enter it. What is the next world we want after this one? Because this one is done. 
You know the wealthy and their fascist friends are already considering their new future for us, and it will not be pretty with everyone armed to the teeth and out for themselves and against anyone who does not look or sound like them. An option other than authoritarian brutality and force needs to be offered and fast before it's too late. From all the guests we've had on this show, one thing I've learned is that revolution, real transformative change, happens when there is a vulnerability that can be exploited, a break that can be pried open, and a new political imaginary can be released. Maybe we can be torn together by the virus and all of this uncertainty during this time of lies. Maybe what is possible in the next new world should be our new focus as we sit alone. Let's imagine the world when we are back together again and the world we want, because if we don't, the Nazis will be glad to declare this is their hell. Coming up, when we think of climate change, we blame oil in the Middle East, but are they to blame for global warming or was it something else? Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive loaded with 25 interviews we did over the past 20 years. That's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, as well as all of our merchandise. Live from the nightmare, this is hell. We have many misconceptions about energy. We believe we move from one age of one energy source and then on to another. We believe that the actual source causes environmental devastation, seemingly taking all political agency out of how we use energy, which is somehow viewed apolitically. Here to tell us how we get got to where we are with energy and its impact on the entire planet. An Barak is author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. Welcome to This Is Hell, An. Thank you, Chuck. Good to be on the show. An is co-founder and co-editor of the Social History Workshop, a weekly blog published on the Haaretz website analyzing current Middle Eastern affairs through the lens of contemporary historical research. You can find that blog at levantine-journal.org slash blog. He's also author of the 2013 title, On Time Technology and Temporality in modern Egypt. You write the Middle East, which is now mostly associated with oil extraction and American power, was in its history turned into a coherent region by British coal and imperial interventionism. This legacy provides an opportunity for a reappraisal of the entanglements of energy and empire, of classical and neo-imperialism, and of coal and oil, unsettling the familiar geographies of extraction and combustion. Coal's peculiar Middle Eastern career exposes both these processes and the connections between them to inquiry. In short, it should help us understand the complex process by which the hydrocarbon economy was created and globalized. Was the British coal and imperial interventionism in the Middle East, was that seeking oil? Was, were, they in, were they seeking yet again a new energy source? Because often when I hear people talk about the British Empire and their involvement with the Middle East, it seems to be focused around oil, and rarely does it discuss coal. Right. Uh, and I think that's true for uh, many people. When, many, when most of us think about the Middle East, we immediately associate the region with oil, but um, I argue that the very middleness of the Middle East is a product of British coal, 
So not oil extracted from the region and going outside, but rather a fossil fuel that comes from um, under the British Isles coming into the region and a series of coaling depots from London, uh, Gibraltar, Malta, Port Said, Aden and Bombay that facilitates the British India traffic is actually what creates the middleness of the Middle East and what makes it a strategic uh, region that uh, imperialism is, is interested in. We blame the global fossil fuel economy on the Middle East. What do we miss when we do not hold the British Empire and its history responsible for fossil fuel use and even its role in contributing to climate change? Well, we miss the fact that um, climate change has a deeper history uh, and that uh, this history is implicated with imperialism. Uh, Actually, one of the titles I played with uh, for my book was Colonialism, C-O-A-L, that tries to capture together or to wed together uh, energy and empire uh, and to think about uh, the proliferation of uh, the first fossil fuel, that is coal, as an imperial strategy. Uh, And, um, you know, in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the British Empire is not very much interested in fossil fuels. It's um, often interested in land grab, and it's uh, creating this, uh, these coaling stations, these fueling stations, just as an excuse to capture territory and footholds in uh, new regions uh, and, uh, and, uh, and thereby facilitating its imperial, imperial expansion. Can you have colonialism without coal? Because I agree with you. I I liked your earlier title, and that's uh, part of your book. You actually keep using the word over and over again, colonialism. And I really do think that might have been better than powering empire. I'm not too sure. I'm kind of up in the air on it. But can you have colonialism without coal? Well, uh, I don't know about other places, but uh, if you think of a region uh, such as the Middle East, which is hot and sweltering, It's very hard to imagine uh, foreign presence and garrisons without, for example, water desalination devices that are coal-fueled. So you cannot sustain uh, a foreign army without an empire of condensers that uh, burns these fossil fuels that that, that comes from the British Isles uh, and uh, allows for steam navigation and for um, um, European troops in places like Aden and the Arabian Peninsula and uh, Port Said and elsewhere. You cannot have imperialism and colonialism without ice machines that, uh, I mean, right, we we think of uh, the age of the steamer uh, and of coal um, itself as a generator of heat, but um, uh, coal burning devices also produced cold and ice machines. And without these ice machines, you cannot have steam navigation because you cannot have Um, uh, people working in uh, the sweltering, um, uh, horrible conditions in the boiler room, um, uh, requiring ice baths uh, when uh, they fainted and uh, and had to be resuscitated um, in the upper deck with ice that was produced uh, by these um, coal-fired ice machines. So in a theater, in an environment that is hot, that is sweltering, uh, you uh, absolutely require uh, these kinds of uh, devices, not to mention the uh, broader political economy with uh, the shift to cash crops. So we think of uh, a place like Egypt, we immediately in the 19th century associated with long staple cotton, uh, 
this cotton is uh, increasingly dependent on perennial irrigation that is itself in turn uh, dependent on, uh, on steam pumps. Uh, so um, right around when uh, uh, the British Isles undergo an industrial revolution that uh, uses steam engines in uh, factories, uh, imperial peripheries, such as many places in the Middle East, undergo an agrarian, an, an agrarian industrial revolution that is as dependent on coal, as dependent on steam engines, uh, and, uh, and that is part and parcel of the global imperial economy that um, uh, the British Empire is orchestrating in uh, regions such as the Middle East and, and elsewhere, and, you know, South Asia and many other places. But we see these technologies, we view these technologies like refrigeration, for instance. We view refrigeration as something that uh, helps end human misery because we have uh, the ability to freeze our food, to keep our food for a longer period of time. But when I see them through your eyes, through your writing in your book, I see these as technologies of imperialism, uh, technologies of building empire. Why do we view these as only technologies of ending human misery and not see their use when they are applied within colonialism and the subjugation of other people? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I, I should make very clear that um, uh, cooling devices and refrigerators and, and uh, steam engines and, and technologies can be put to very uh, valuable and, um, and auspicious uses. Uh, and it in co cooling muscles, cooling foods, uh, increases life, life expectancy, um, allows uh, sustaining growing populations, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, these technologies also can be put to um, uh, many other uses. Uh, and uh, especially if you consider, uh, to take your example, uh, the early uh, refrigeration devices uh, and uh, the possibilities that they open up for, say, cooling food, uh, also launches um, global carnivority, right? The uh, vast shift in the 19th century to uh, protein-based diet to um, to eating animals. Uh, animals are actually uh, uh, during the 19th century um, uh, gradually cease to become engines and increasingly become fuel or food. Yeah, they stop becoming uh, driving forces and workers, and uh, increasingly they become um, uh, food and meat. Uh, and if we think about the contribution of uh, this process to global warming. Uh, uh, that, that uh, certainly leaves uh, a, a tremendous impact. Um, so, um, you know, uh, every technology uh, can be put to uh, multiple uses, uh, but uh, especially these coal-fired technologies are uh, traditionally uh, considered to be labor-saving devices, uh, right? Uh, the steam engine is supposed to make redundant the reliance on uh, manpower and on human muscles. But in fact, uh, when we look uh, carefully, we see that um, there is, uh, rather than a shift between energy regimes and uh, a series of energy transitions animated by these technologies, we see actually an intensification, an intensification in the reliance on, on manpower and human muscle, an intensification in, in biomass and in the various kinds of reliance on muscle, on the muscles of animals, uh, and uh, seen through the eyes of the of the planet, if you if you if you will, uh, that has tremendous repercussions 
for um, uh, for our uh, condition today. Uh, if we are yet to see an energy transition in the sense of leaving an, an energy source behind, if our story is actually a story of accumulation and intensification, then uh, we um, uh, th then you know also moving forward, uh, we have little reason to expect uh, a post oil or a post fossil fuel uh, future where in fact history does not uh, demonstrate that uh, we have left something in our past. We are only accumulating. I want to get to that uh, point about resource transition in a moment, but you mentioned meat eating, and you write that to provide increasing quantities of meat to the growing troop and steam passenger traffic in Aden, the British eventually took over Somalia, which became known as Aden's Butcher Shop. Indeed, meat consumption was another outcome and engine of colonialism, a result of the transformation of livestock from workforce into fuel and from a relationship of collaboration with humans to one of predation. Animal biomass and related greenhouse gas emissions, soil erosion, and water depletion have mounted during and since the 19th century to the extent that today ecologists claim giving up beef would help curtail global warming more than giving up cars. Why does empire need to run on meat? Well, I think um, it's famously, uh, so, um, you know, we, we tend to assume that armies march on their bellies. And certainly in the kind of mind frame or mindset of the 19th century, uh, martial uh, forces, um, uh, martial races and, and uh, troops, um, uh, certainly in, uh, in hot places, require this uh, kind of uh, more uh, concentrated diet. Uh, and um, in uh, the British Empire, but also in the Ottoman Empires, uh, in, in, uh, in Egypt, which uh, runs a mini empire uh, of its own, um, with um, general recruitment, we see a shift of peasants who uh, in the past seldom eat meat uh, to more and more uh, carnivorous diet, uh, which is supposed to make them stronger. Uh, and to help them march and fight and uh, with, withstand disease. Uh, and indeed, meat consumption uh, does um, uh, solve various uh, health problems. Uh, it, it does extend um, our life expect expectancy, but uh, it also has uh, tremendous prices. Um, it, when we look at, uh, at uh, climate change through the history of meat consumption, in places like the Middle East and uh, other places in the British Empire, we uh, also should uh, keep in mind the fact that these places can offer resources and insights. So you mentioned uh, Aden and uh, Aden and uh, British troops, or, or rather the East India Company troops uh, capturing Somalia. Um, a few decades uh, later, in uh, the 1880s, a famous passenger who's uh, yet to be famous, uh, I'm, I'm talking about Gandhi, is passing, is passing uh, through Aden on his way to uh, school in London. And he's, uh, this is uh, actually the first time where he's experimenting with vegetarianism. Uh, so uh, insights of uh, actors in this um, interconnected system um, and the politicization of vegetarianism, the connection of vegetarianism and anti-imperialism uh, and, and other uh, Gandhian resources are also born in this uh, imperial system. So uh, kinds of resistance 
uh, and insights that can be very valuable to us today, right? Because today we think of vegetarianism, we think about it in the West as, as a life choice, as a, as a lifestyle. But Gandhi thinks of vegetarianism out of his experience passing through these corridors of the British Empire as a political instrument, as an instrument that creates coalitions. Um, and uh, Gandhian thought about vegetarianism is translated in the 1820s and 1830s to Arabic. And uh, uh, Arab intellectuals are engaging with Gandhian vegetarianism in very fruitful ways. So I think that uh, within the story of empire and colonialism, uh, we also have uh, these um, resources that we can recycle or we can uh, pay attention to uh, that might be useful also in addressing our current predicament. We are speaking with An Barak. He is author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. An is a social and cultural historian of science and technology in non-Western settings and a senior lecturer in the Department of Middle Eastern and African History at Tel Aviv University. So on transition sources of energy, are, are those transition sources of energy actually a transition or is it merely yet another fossil fuel that is added to the menu of fossil fuel sources? Because today's transition fuel. As we're told by the Democratic Party, as we're told by the Republican Party, Hillary Clinton went on about this uh, during the 2016 campaign. In 2020, we have Joe Biden going on about it. And that is the transition fuel is natural gas, which is proving to be environmentally devastating despite not being as carbon emitting as gas or oil when used as a fuel. The whole processing of it could be even worse than actual oil drilling. Considering the history of past transition fuels, how much of a transition will natural gas be to cleaner fuels in a post-oil, post-coal, post-natural gas, post-water, post-human, post-animal <laughs> fuel source? How much are we going to just see, this is just temporary, we're just using natural gas for a couple of years? Right. Um, uh, a gateway uh, a gateway energy to hell. Um, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we tell ourselves uh, this uh, very nice story about energy transitions. Um, the story goes something like this. Before modernity, humanity uh, uses um, renewable uh, energy sources, the powers of the wind and, uh, and the water and the sun, and mainly it relies on the muscles of people and, uh, and animals. Uh, around uh, the 19th century or the late 18th and early 19th century, there is an, an energy transition to fossil fuels, to coal, and then coal is replaced by oil. And according to some accounts, we are now in a post-oil moment characterized by, I don't know, as you say, natural gas. Uh, and of course, we don't count the, the methane uh, emissions uh, in, in that uh, horizon or, or renewables or what have you. Uh, but as you might very well know, last year in 2019, humanity combusted more coal than it did in any other historical year. In that sense, we are neck deep in the age of coal. Uh, and uh, in, in my uh, study, I uh, discovered that already in the beginning of the age of coal, the supposed transition uh, to coal and away from muscle and uh, hydropower and, and solar and wind is actually no transition at all, that there is uh, only an intensification, that there is more reliance on animals, there is more reliance on people. Uh, of course, when we look at it uh, uh, on, uh, on relative terms, uh, we do use less coal now than we did in the 19th century. But in total terms, 
we use much more of it. And uh, of course, the planet doesn't care that we relatively use less coal. Uh, and I, I argue that uh, when we talk the talk of energy transitions, um, we uh, and, and actually when we talk the, the talk more generally of, of energy and energy regimes, uh, we use the master's tools to try and dismantle the master's house. We use the master's energies to, to try and dismantle the master's house. Whereas uh, we uh, need not care about uh, coal or oil or natural gas only as energy sources. We need not care about uh, only about questions of combustion. Combustion. What we should care about is emissions and uh, the various reper repercussions of uh, regimes of extraction and transportation and use, um, and and the the, the pollution and, and uh, climate uh, warming that they uh, that they create. So uh, speaking uh, and adopting this terminology of energy transition and energy itself. Uh, I think obfuscates more than it reveals, uh, and it um, um, keeps us on this uh, path uh, of of telling ourselves these comforting tales about transition, where we're not transitioning at all. You write that yours is a book against energy, the supposed transparent and ambient essence of all motive powers, which vaporizes materiality and specificity. In order to discuss coal as more than just a fuel, indeed, even to understand more fully how its use as fuel affects other domains, it is essential to set energy aside. What better way is there to recognize and resist energy's abstractions than by historicizing them. But is it energy's fault or is it our fault for doing what we have done with energy? And being against energy, do we risk the chance of not holding human choices responsible for what we have done with that energy source? Right, and you know, as a historian of science and technology, I'm very much, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in how humans are talking about the world and what uh, translating the world into energy and into empire does. Uh, but uh, look, we tend to think about energy in transhistorical and in ahistorical uh, terms. We tend to assume with the laws of thermodynamics that uh, the sum, the total sum of energy in the universe remains constant. You cannot destroy energy, you cannot create new energy. Uh, but as a framework, energy is very much historical. It's a creature um, or an epistemology that is born in a particular branch of physics, in thermodynamics, which dates its birth to the 1840s. And uh, very soon thereafter, it kind of sets on an imperial, on, on an epistemological imperialism. It captures uh, the exact sciences, um, uh, moving from there to the uh, natural sciences, mainly to evolutionary biology. Uh, from there, it moves to the social sciences, to uh, neoclassical economics. Uh, and it begins to organize our world. And, and of course, you are absolutely right. One cannot exaggerate the importance of, of the laws of thermodynamics and the kinds of translation and commensurability that they allow between heat, motion, and work. I mean, th these are the very uh, basis of modern science. But I argue, again, that uh, this optic can obfuscate almost as much as it reveals because it prevents us from seeing exactly what uh, what you uh, mentioned, Chuck, which is how people use stuff. Um, uh, we talk about if we talk about coal only as an energy source, we are blind 
to uh, other aspects of coal and other aspects of coal extraction and coal combustion uh, and the kinds of, um, of excuses that coal affords to, say, uh, imperialist projects. Uh, and uh, we find ourselves complicit with uh, 19th century imperialist excuses and, and agendas uh, exactly when we should resist them. So um, I'm trying to uh, do a kind of a double-edged or, or um, uh, a twofold maneuver, which is on the one hand to follow coal as an energy source, but also to ask what calling it an energy source uh, makes us miss or, or makes us blind to, and what other aspects of coal, uh, such as its materiality, its weight, its, um, its connection to imperialism, um, its connection to other driving forces that are supposedly left in, uh, in coal's uh, past, but actually are accumulating as coal uh, gathers force. What do all these stories um, uh, create and how does that uh, affect um, a history of, of a particular place and, and, and global history uh, in general? Right, and that kind of leads to the next question I was was going to ask, which is, has all human activity in the sciences, in the arts, in everything, even where we may not expect it, like religion, has all our thinking since the Industrial Revolution first began been framed, been restrained, been limited, been guided and advanced? Has all of what we see as progress been about the pursuit of energy? And what happens when energy guides a society? Ah, that's a very broad question. Um, I can only, you know, take stabs at it. Um, certainly, um, I think that um, oil, uh, coal, and then oil, and you know, energy sources uh, generally are behind almost everything we, associ- we associate with modernity. Uh, so uh, the kinds of temporality and uh, the ideas we have about human history uh, as a march forward. Uh, and the kinds of uh, theology and art and politics that are associated with these expectations uh, are very much animated by uh, cheap fossil fuels uh, and the ability to move rapidly uh, in uh, in an increasingly interconnected world. Uh, and right now, uh, under uh, coronavirus, uh, we experience some of the Um, pushbacks of of this interconnected world, perhaps. Um, So uh, certainly our expectations uh, from history are fueled by uh, coal and then oil. Uh, But uh, other broad broad, uh, processes, certainly in the Middle East and and, um, and also elsewhere, also in Western Europe and in North America, uh, democracy, uh, urbanization, the rise of the interventionist state uh, are all made possible by uh, this kind of new cheap fossil fuels uh, that um, have a price we uh, insist on not acknowledging. You mentioned the growth in Aden due to the British Empire. Aden's population soared from 600 in the year 1839 to 20,738 in 1856. By 1891, it numbered 40,926 inhabitants. Other life forms followed suit, and proximity between species quickly became an object of fascination and experimentation in this coal depot. For example, European steamer travelers developed a habit of standing on deck and throwing coins for the Arab and Somali boys to retrieve 
from the shark-infested bay. The racialized economy of lives that this practice revealed prompted disapproving comments by Islamic pilgrims in their travelogues. Did energy somehow contribute to this brutal reaction to the newfound proximity between Europeans and locals in Aden? What role does energy play in that brutality? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, since you mentioned the um, uh, tremendous population growth of Aden and, uh, and almost every other coal depot, uh, Port Said and, and many others, um, I would suggest that, uh, you know, these, uh, Aden is a good example for, for what I call a multi-species boomtown. Certainly in terms of human population, uh, it sees a tremendous growth, but with humans, you have uh, other people, uh, other, sorry, other species. Uh, from prickly pear that uh, is brought by uh, the British troops in an attempt to ward off uh, attacks by uh, Bedouin tribes uh, to um, vegetables and uh, and fish and uh, and uh, um, sea termites uh, and water birds um, and in that respect you have a, a terra nullius a place that was um, home to nobody or to uh, as you pointed out. Uh, prior to the 1839 British uh, occupation, Aden only has 600 inhabitants. Uh, and a few decades later, it has uh, tens of thousands. And increasingly, these people are organizing themselves into foreigners and locals. But Aden was not a place, uh, it was not native to anybody. Uh, so the kinds of uh, intercommunal politics, these kinds of bifurcations and split to Europeans and natives uh, is uh, a fascinating uh, characteristic of these uh, settings, of these calling depots uh, that um, are, are hubs of tremendous uh, multiplicity and tremendous chaos, but uh, it is a chaos that needs to be tamed, needs to be reduced, and needs to be couched in these kind of sectarian uh, intercommunal categories so um, everybody is an invading species in Aden uh, in the 1840s, uh, but uh, these invading species, be they Arabs or Somalis or, um, or you know, South Asians or Parsis or uh, Brits or, or French or, or uh, Russians or uh, what have you, uh, they um, soon thereafter begin to kind of organize themselves in the familiar into the familiar political boxes of uh, natives and foreigners, uh, of locals and uh, newcomers. Uh, and I think that's a fascinating um, characteristic of these uh, of this uh, chain of calling depots, um, where um, a very reductionist human politics emerges out of a very chaotic, rich uh, and challenging uh, platform of emergence. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, what brings these people and, and other species to Aden is coal. Um, Aden is, um, uh, soon after its uh, conquest in 1839, one of the major uh, calling, depot, uh, calling depots uh, in um, allowing uh, traffic uh, from the Indian Ocean. So uh, coal is very much responsible um, for the intercommunal politics uh, and uh, interspecies politics that uh, that Aden witnesses, for sure.
You reveal hidden foundations for the present world and help undermine both our fixation with energy regimes and energy zone authoritarian regime. Much in contemporary energy politics consists of products of these secularist, capitalist, and imperialist frameworks that coal created as it spread globally in the long 19th century. But coal just gave us the ability to do all those things. Did humanity always long to be subjugating racist, capitalist, colonial, imperial zealots abroad while we put the smiling face of democracy on empire back home? Is this what we always wanted to do? And finally, coal gave us the ability to be the horrible British empire that was. I mean, who knows what uh, we always wanted. Um, but uh, I think... Um, What's more important than desires is the capacity to carry out these desires. Uh, and certainly coal allows for or fuels an imperialist uh, project in ways that are unprecedented and are very effective. Uh, and uh, that's on the kind of negative side. Coal also animates um, um, democratic projects and uh, allows workers unprecedented powers of disruption. Uh, so uh, you might argue, and this would be the other side, the, the plus side, if you if you want, uh, that uh, workers have always fought or ha have always desired to improve their well-being uh, and to kind of uh, gain uh, rights and and perhaps political participation. Uh, but um, only in the 19th century are they allowed to do. To, uh, uh, can they do it uh, through the uh, capacity uh, for disruption that uh, that coal gives them. Uh, so, um, as a historian of, of technology and as a historian of energy, I'm less interested in kind of uh, broad desires and um, transhistorical aspirations of, of various groups of humans, but in uh, particular junctions that uh, and particular. Um, instruments or, or driving forces uh, or, or powers of disruption that allow people to carry these uh, projects uh, into completion or, or to, to kind of uh, act on them. So, so I think coal and the kinds of technologies that, uh, that burn it and, and that use it um, allows uh, to translate various kinds of wants into various kinds of uh, real world politics. And, and that's what makes it interesting in my eyes. You, quote, bolster the position of decarbonization via reverse growth, deceleration, <clears throat> and even by turning our gaze to the past to modes of being and engagement, to pass passivity rather than knee-jerk activity and activism, and to staying with the trouble. All these need to be explored, defended, articulated, developed, historicized, and democratized. As Walter Benjamin put it, Marx says that revolutions are the locomotive of world history, but perhaps it is quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by the passengers on the train, namely the human race, to activate the emergency brake. Is the revolution we need to stop? And could COVID-19 be space for that revolution? Ah, that's actually a question I've been thinking uh, probably like many people um, in the past um, several weeks. Uh, and I think that the 19th century uh, and uh, the world of coal and say the world of coal and cholera, which is uh, the, the uh, epidemic par excellence of, of that period, can teach us a great deal about uh, the 21st century and 
and the second wave of globalization. So if you consider, for example, the quantum leap in global or planetary connectivity, uh, this is an infrastructure that's put together um, in the 19th century. Uh, so cholera, for example, um, uh, is endemic in uh, South Asia long before the 19th century, but with the arrival of the steamship, its vector, the vector of contagion, uh, shortens significantly and uh, people can um, infect others before dying, right? Uh, cholera kills you within 72 hours. Uh, so only in this interconnected world of uh, calling depots uh, can um, an, an epidemic uh, go pandemic or go global. Um, um, these kinds of infrastructures uh, sever the connection between travel and, se and seasonality. Uh, so with the uh, rise of the all-weather ship, the steamer, uh, people can travel uh, in the winter. Uh, and can spread disease even to uh, places where there's now summer, like Australia. Uh, the kinds of um, um, capitalist uh, ideology uh, that we see today, uh, the, the kinds of hesitation in uh, enforcing quarantine, um, the uh, question of uh, balancing the economy and, uh, and bare life, uh, all these things are debates that beginning begin in the 19th century around cholera and around uh, how cholera goes global with coal. So I think uh, COVID-19 has a lot to uh, to talk about with uh, with the uh, cholera bacillus, uh, and uh, we humans have a lot to learn from from both. Um, I, I think what's striking in my eyes about uh, how we talk about. Uh, climate change and COVID-19 today is that we only notice it downstream, right? We only marvel at the clearing of uh, air pollution above Wuhan and how, uh, you know, emissions, uh, greenhouse emissions have dropped with the um, uh, halting of the global economy. But we fail to see that we have put together a planetary conveyor belt for uh, pathogens like, uh, like the coronavirus uh, and that this is an oil-fueled um, an oil fuel pandemic. Uh, so I, I'm not sure uh, COVID-19 would be the uh, cure for uh, climate change or globalization. It's actually a symptom of the very system that, that creates it. Wow, that's that's fascinating. You write, in fact, the imbroglios of energy and empire suggest that in many arenas, pursuing social justice could significantly advance the crucial goal of decarbonization, thus directing attention to the different standards of living and consumption habits of the average North American and sub-Saharan African might curb the carbon footprint of the former, that being the North American. Will COVID-19 either force that sacrifice upon us to lower our standard of living in the global North or West can can COVID-19 save us from the constant pursuit of economic growth and the environmental devastation that that has done to the planet? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, and it's actually quite scary to, to wait and see, right? Because uh, there will be a great deal of suffering um, uh, on, the, on the path to perhaps a new world. Uh, so uh, obviously, these kinds of pandemics and these kinds of um, of planetary crises uh, are an opportunity, but they're an opportunity to all sorts of powers, uh, and uh, not all of them are on our side. Uh, so, um, um, I mean, I'm uh, as as oblivious as as all of us. Uh, 
but I think that one of the lessons that I um, try to um, uh, to examine or to uh, put forth uh, from from working on on the book is that insights uh, from uh, the global south uh, and uh, experiences that are not necessarily liberal, that are not necessarily conversations that are not necessarily carried out in English, um, ideas that are not necessarily secular, uh, have a lot to teach us about um, about our uh, current predicament uh, and the fossil fueled environment that we have created uh, and that we have globalized and that we have globalized with the active participation of these actors in the global south. Uh, so since uh, they or we are part of uh, that history and that legacy, uh, experiences from um, these various non-West uh, uh, settings uh, can be quite insightful. One last question for you, on We have been speaking with An Barak, author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. He is also the author of the 2013 book On Time, Technology and Temporality in Modern Egypt. He is co-founder and co-editor of the Social History Workshop, a weekly blog published on the Heretz website analyzing current Middle Eastern affairs through the lens of contemporary historical research. And you can find his blog, that blog, at levantine-journal.org slash blog. And I want to make certain that everybody understands that this book is far more than what we've discussed today and some of the alternative uh, ideas and approaching the future that he considers are ideas that are from uh, Islam and are absolutely fascinating. And we've been having these discussions on our show of late about how many indigenous ideas have been ignored in this process and how we need to reconsider indigenous processes of the ways that they, uh, for instance, manage agriculture, manage the land. Land management when it comes to indigenous practices are far better than what we are using today. So that's just another aspect of the book I want to make sure everybody understood and that you should definitely check out An's book. Again, Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. One last question for you, An, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write, the Western tradition is informed by an ethos whereby science, politics, and ethics are separate domains. Again, this is something that does not happen within indigenous thinking and does not happen apparently in the writing that you've done, does not happen as much in Islamic thinking either. But other traditions, homologic to Western science and connected to it with modern carbon fibers, have not insisted on such a separation of force and power, book and nature. As such, they now offer potential idioms for invigorating and reforming climate ethics and justice and for injecting existing and new scientific knowledge into politics that might better resonate with publics globally. When it comes to its carbon footprint, has the Western tradition, has it led, has it caused us to come to the dead end of climate change? Do we need to find something outside of the Western tradition in order to confront the Western tradition with any real effectiveness? Do we need to end the Western tradition to end climate change? Ah. Uh. Wow, um, that's a question from Hill. Um, look, I'm I'm not proposing uh, a black savior approach or some kind of indigenous pure epistemology that would 
that is completely unimplicated by fossil fuels and therefore it would redeem us and, and offer um, a complete alternative to the Western tradition. Um, but um, in the region that I'm studying, say uh, the Ottoman Empire and its, um, uh, its offshoots uh, in the Middle East, uh, the very global processes that uh, in uh, Western Europe are called the scientific revolution in the 17th century that separate uh, science uh, and state and state and church in the Ottoman Empire actually uh, fasten the bond between um, church and state or, or, or Islam and state, so much so that in the 19th century, uh, Ottoman scientists are uh, competing uh, in Islamic piety. Uh, and uh, the result of this process is that uh, ethics is not divorced and is not banished from science. Uh, and uh, when um, Ottoman and, and Middle Eastern um, engineers and, um, and, and simple people who engage with technology think about these technologies and uh, the, the, the scientific epistemologies that uh, come, uh, come along with them, they uh, also insist on thinking about them ethically. Uh, and I think that uh, we uh, very much need that kind of ethical thinking. Um, um, a system of um, not only of rights, but also of obligations, a consideration of, uh, of broader communities, of uh, intergenerational responsibility, uh, various kinds of solidarity that uh, we no longer see in, uh, in our scientific, in our techno-scientific um, um, environments. Uh, so all these things are things that we can learn uh, from um, an Ottoman and, and later a Middle Eastern experience that is part and parcel of, uh, of the globalization of, of hydrocarbons. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an outside, uh, but because it's um, uh, plugged in um, as, uh, as a secondary um, uh, component, um, much of the thinking about coal and about energy uh, is inflected through these ethical optics or ethical lenses. And, and this yields very interesting, very valuable insights that we can uh, retool, recycle when we think about today. We have been speaking with An Barak, author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. An, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating book, a fascinating topic. And even though we're talking about the British Empire in the 19th century, it is oddly timely. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I cannot thank you enough because this really was a great book. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, An. Money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money, so... You do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. 
The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, loaded with 25 interviews we did over the past 20 years. It's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now if you'd like, along with our trucker cap, t-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, and much more at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. Oh, and also on the merch front, let me just really recommend this hat. It's the only hat I wear. I wear I have two, <laughs> I have two of them. Uh, one's covered in dirt, uh, actually the one I'm wearing right now. Uh, it's a very good hat. We're proud of it. <laughs> Wrangler Steve wears it now, too. What did you run out of in your... Oh, geez, there's a lot of responses. Okay, well, I guess everyone's <laughs> sitting in their personal quarantine. What did you run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you run out of in your personal quarantine? Chris L. says, sanity. Amy M. says, hope. Harold J. says, my sense of nostalgia for a simpler time when Rudy Giuliani was on TV every day. <laughs> Damn. Jacob H. says, executive function and, more importantly, toilet paper. Todd K. says, a future. Badger N. says, reasons to support the DNC. Adam A. says, excuses for capitalism. What did you run out of in your personal quarantine? Lisa B. says, what little sanity I had left. Now it's just cobwebs. Nick A. says, belly rubs for the doggos. Aaron D. says, fentanyl and Doritos. Jeremy T. says, patience for the moderate slash centrist wing of the Democratic Party. Shane M. says, puns. Well, there's some good news. Oh, man. What did you run out of in your personal quarantine already? Walter M. says, having to deal with stupid, moronic people, and I don't miss it at all. Damn, there's no supply of stupid, moronic people in my personal quarantine. <laughs> I tried to, try to lower that supply as quickly as possible. Uh, Stephen S. says, patients are people using ancient alien brand critical thinking for paranoic understandings of what is going on. Well, what am I going to do now? I've seen the government is using 5G to spread the virus, FFS. Uh, Daniel S. says, self-discipline, hoping that I will soon run out of procrastination. John C. says, reasons to stay indoors to hide from the insanity outside. Joshua L. says, my faith in humanity between the election of Joe Biden and nearly getting run down for toilet paper every day at my job. A couple more. What did you run out of already in your personal quarantine? Avery H. says, toilet paper. Uh, Mez M. says, maraschino cherries and grenadine. <laughs> Pete V., and I don't want to read this one, just wrote lube. And uh, finally, Joel S. says, leftovers. You know, one thing that I've noticed so far is that you see all these stories on TV, and I know that they're trying to find the stores with the empty shelves, but it appears that these stores have, like, there's no food available to anybody when they show these reports on TV. And I have heard that places like Target and Whole Foods and Mariano's and Jewel and, you know, where white people shop, I've heard that those places, are, they really do have a shortage. I have no idea if that's the case. I haven't been to any of those stores recently, so I don't know. Every grocery store, there's four grocery stores on this block alone. Four. Four. They are all open. They have shelves that are full. I think Parbirdie closed early last night because I think that Mr. and Mrs. Khan are older, and so they don't, they're do not they not open right now. Uh, but all the stores are, you know, the shelves are filled. I can walk to th uh, three different stores right now. They're all filled. Nobody's in them. Last night, the butcher across the street, the, the Zabiha Halal shop across the street, he was just standing in the doorway. And I said, how's business? And he goes, nobody's coming in. All the shelves were full. So food isn't a problem. I, I just don't, I think this is a, it's a real problem with Whitey. I think that's it. Uh, hey, spe Alex. Speaking of Whitey, my neighbor got a um, scallops half off because I think they're rushing to get rid of seafood. So if uh, you're looking for a deal on seafood, <laughs> it's a, nothing like a pandemic to eat some scallops. Huh? <laughs> where, where is this half off scallops thing? Uh, Mar Mariano's. Oh, really? 
Go figure. So who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 a.m.? That's Thursday, by the way. Tomorrow's Thursday. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, hold on a second. I'm going to pull that up. One second. Oh, yeah. I have to learn how to pronounce this person's name correctly so I don't butcher it throughout the entire show tomorrow. I remember that part of it. Uh, we also will have Jeff doing the moment of truth tomorrow. And uh, let's see. Anything else? I don't know. Oh, more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Okay, uh, Yekaterina Ozyasvili, on her left voice piece, The U.S. Constitution and the Myth of Liberal Democracy. And as, and and as of right now, we will be doing the show tomorrow. We have no idea if that is going to happen because you don't know what's happening from day to day here under the virus. Uh, so I'm really not certain, but that is who we have scheduled for tomorrow. Yeah. We hope and, to be back here uh, Hey, if we are not able to do the show tomorrow for whatever reason, uh, I will have another classic archive thing streamed uh, live at 10 o'clock and then podcast uh, shortly after. Yeah, and uh, one so last... So there'll be something. Oh, also, uh, Jeff t- sent us the tease. Uh, tomorrow, God willing, Jeff ranks the Austrian nobility. <laughs> I'm glad he's keeping himself busy. Uh, and uh, remember, the uh, thing that I have run out of in my own personal quarantine, if you can get me that thing that I've run out of in my personal quarantine, I'd really appreciate it. And I don't want to tell you what that thing is. It's weed. If I, I don't want to tell you what it is. But if you can help me out. Help out Alex. It'd really help out the show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>